Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. How do you call what Elizabeth Warren, what Bernie Sanders, with several of the other progressive candidates for president, and certainly the, the Democratic Progressive Caucus, and it's not actually even the Democratic Progressive Caucus, it's the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Republicans are welcome to join it, but there's no progressive Republicans left anymore. There actually used to be progressive Republicans. Why do we call the positions that are being held by Democrats fringe or radical or socialist? You get these multi-multi-millionaires on the big television networks and particularly in the cable networks talking about the far left and the radical left and all this kind of thing. Far left, really? To the best of my knowledge, we are the FDR left. We are the LBJ left. Now, the problem with saying LBJ left, you know, unfortunately, is that Lyndon Johnson also had this war in Vietnam going. And, you know, it, I mean, I was one of those people out in the streets chanting, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids have you killed today, right? It took a long time for me to essentially forgive LBJ, and I've never forgiven him for the war, but to allow the war part of LBJ's legacy to stop overshadowing the progressive part of LBJ's legacy, because LBJ brought us the Civil Rights Act. He brought us the Voting Rights Act. He brought us a genuine attempt at producing racial equality in the United States. It was during his administration, I believe, that the Equal Rights Amendment was first rolled out. Um, I might be wrong on that, but you know, the idea that we're all here together, we're all in this together, was something that came out, that really came to the fore during the Kennedy-Johnson-Humphrey administrations. Kennedy, of course, was assassinated in 63. LBJ became president. He got reelected or got elected in 64. And then things just, you know, got very messy with Vietnam. 
But he also brought us Medicare. He brought us Medicaid. And these were not things that LBJ just said, you know, hey, you know, let's just do this. This is a great idea. These were actually things that Franklin Roosevelt had proposed 30 years earlier in the 1930s. Actually, 20 years earlier from the 1960s, it was the 1940s that Franklin Roosevelt gave his second Bill of Rights speech where he said housing should be a right, a job should be a right. And what that means, if something's a right, it means that the government provides it if the, if the so-called free market, if the economy of capitalism fails to. So, you know, we had capitalist fire departments for a long time in the United States. My dad grew up in Chicago back in the 1920s and 1930s. I, I don't know if it was then or if it was before then, but there was a time in Chicago, my dad told me this story, where if you didn't have the right fire department's shield on, your, on the front door of your house and your house caught on fire, or if you didn't have any shield at all, if you weren't paying you know, a monthly vig to the for-profit fire department, your house would burn down. And I think that the great Chicago fire might have rebooted that. Frankly, I'm, you know, I might be completely wrong about this because, again, this is just a story my dad told me. But I know that all over the country there were these for-profit fire departments. And we figured out, you know, there are some things that the for-profit world does well, right? They make blue jeans, they make computers, but they don't build roads very well. They don't run fire departments very well. You, God forbid they should run our police departments or our army, which, by the way, about half of our military budget now is going to for-profit corporations, which is mind-boggling when you consider how large our military budget is. And by the way, if every time one of these I, st I almost said a word you can't say on the air. Every time one of these idiots on cable TV or, or even you know, regular network television says, the far left or the fringe or the radical uh, left or the uh, socialists or the democratic socialists, every time they say that, why do we not push back on social media? Why are we not raising hell on Twitter and saying, no, we are FDR Democrats. We are trying to bring back the legacy of Franklin Roosevelt that built not just the Democratic Party, that built the American middle class, pure and simple. The American middle class was decimated under the practices of Harding and Coolidge and Hoover in the 1920s. Warren Harding ran for president in 1920. The top tax rate at that point in time, left over from Woodrow Wilson, was 91%. It kicked in at 91% after about $3 million in annual income in today's dollars, as I recall. But at some point, it kicked in. It was 91%. And there was government regulation of the marketplace. The Panic of 1896 was one of the things that really led to this. There was this massive crash in the late 1890s. People in the 1920s were still remembering. In fact, 1919, 1920, I mean, it was pretty much everybody remembered. And so there had been some really serious regulations put on banks and put on stockbrokers and, and things like this. There was a lot of talk about invent, you know, creating what we now know as the Fed, which came about, as I recall, in 1913. The Republicans using what today we would call Reaganomics had just devastated America. And so Warren Harding, he ran on two things. Number one, lower taxes. And he did. He dropped them down to 25% when he became president. And number two, more business in government, less government in business, which is deregulation and privatization, or privatization and deregulation, actually, the way I just laid it out. And what did it bring us? It brought us the Roaring Twenties. Well, what was the Roaring Twenties? Well, people think that the Roaring Twenties was when everybody got richer. Actually, working people during the Roaring Twenties saw their incomes go down, just like now. The really rich made a fortune, and the stock market exploded. And we are living in the echo of that right now. So why don't we say this? Robert Reich, 
laid this out. He, it's just absolutely brilliant. He's like, you know, well, the, the, you know, because these guys who are saying, oh, you know, it's the fringe, it's the radicals, it's the hard left, the far left, right? Talking as if we're not the center of America. You may call me whatever you want. You can call me a democratic socialist. You can call, call it doesn't matter. But the positions that I'm talking about, just consider this. 76% of Americans want higher taxes on the super rich. 60% of Americans want a wealth tax on fortunes of over $50 million. And this was a poll from Fox News. 70% of Americans want Medicare for all. 60% of Republicans support allowing anyone under 65 to buy into Medicare. 92% of Americans want lower prescription drug prices. Over 70% think we should be able to buy drugs imported from Canada if our federal government can't get their act together. Meanwhile, 60% of Americans, 60% support college-free tuition. People, oh, that Bernie Sanders, he's a socialist. No, no, he's an American. 62% of Americans think cl not only climate change is man-made, but we need damn well better be doing something about it. 84% of Americans think money has too much influence in politics. 77% of Americans support limits on campaign spending. And that includes 71% of Republicans. And these are not weird left-leaning polls. You know how Fox, they pull some right-wing poll out where they only poll people on you know, Fox News or something. These are, these are, this is America. America wants FDR Democrats. America wants a return to a growing middle class and at this point I'd say a shrinking billionaire class. But America's not getting it in large part because of the Supreme Court and Citizens United and all that stuff. And we've got some serious work to do here, my friends. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Stephen in Renton, Washington. Hey, Stephen, what's on your mind today? So I was telling the screener that several lifelong Democrats that I've known for decades are talking about they just can't vote for Bernie. So a lot of these same people, they want the, uh, the post office privatized. They, um, they um, appear to be morphing into Republicans. And as, as, as uh, you've already hit the nail on the head, the Republicans have been taken over by the Libertarians. So... So we need the new revolution of maybe maybe we have to think up a new name, a new party. I don't know, but man, what a trip! It's a paradigm shift. Yeah. and I'm with you, Stephen. I'm I'm with you, and and uh, spot on. And thank you for listening to KBCS. Here's here's how I would message this: the the media loves to talk about people like you and me as being the far left. We're not the far left. I think that we need to rebrand ourselves. I really do, that we, we just need to seriously rebrand ourselves and call ourselves FDR Democrats, right? Every time somebody in the media says, well, the far left says this or the far left says that or any of this kind of, uh, you know, frankly, BS, we just need to say, no, it's not the far left. We are not the far left. That's not what's going on here. And, you know, what it is, is... We're FDR Democrats. We want to return the Democratic Party back to its roots, back to its progressive roots, back to the worldview that FDR had. FDR went so far as to say, and this was, you know, in the year before he died, he went so far as to say that we should define a new Bill of Rights, a second Bill of Rights is what he called it, a second Bill of Rights, and that that second Bill of Rights should include things like the right to health care, the right to education, the right to housing, 
FDR proposed. The right to a job. Now, the, when you say something that is a right, what that means is, like, you know, we have broadly decided in the United States that we all have a right, essentially a right, to have the fire department put out our fire if our house is on fire. We decided a long time ago that we have the right to police protection. In fact, if the police fail to protect you or the fire department fails to take care of you if there's a fire or something, you could sue, right? Your right was taken away. These things are rights, and FDR was talking about these as rights. And this is like, and people say, oh, you know, these guys, you know, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, they're so far left. This is the extreme left. This is the weird. And screw that. We're not the far left. We are what America wants. And, and this whole idea of the far left, I think it's time to rebrand ourselves as the FDR Democrats and go back to that. And at the same time, the media likes to use the phrase the hard right. This is particularly bizarre from my point of view because the fascist right loves the word hard, right? We're tough guys. We're the hard right. Yeah, yeah, call us hard right. That's yeah, fine with that. I would like to call them the fascist right because that's what they are. They're friggin' fascists. And, and you know, why don't we just like own up to that? Why don't, why don't we just acknowledge that? Why, why can't, you know, why do we have to just dance around all this stuff? Um, it, 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 it strikes me as, as weak and incompetent and ineffective that we, you know, that, that, you know th there's got to be a way to essentially completely rebrand the whole thing and, and say, you know, yes, it is possible to have a political party, a progressive political party in the United States. It is possible to have a fascist political party in the United States. And we need to acknowledge that. Cheryl in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Cheryl, what's on your mind today? My scenario is a little different. I would like to see a progressive party. I'd like to see the Democratic Party be taken over by progressives so it becomes a progressive party. Well, I would like to see that, but... I mean, it happened in the 30s and the 40s, and arguably in the 60s. Well, it would be nice if it would do that, but then the corporate... Democrats would have to do. I don't want the other side to. They'd have to go away, just like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, you know, primary Joe Crowley. If the Democratic Party can push them out, fine. But history is like, okay, had uh, what we're in right now is the Roaring Twenties, in my opinion. And then there's yeah. the Depression, and we're getting close to it. Yep, I I'm agree. hoping that we can avoid it, but. <laughs> At any rate, that well, was an idea that when you were talking I came up with was that if they're going to fade out, I would rather go the way of having the progressives take over the lead, whether it's within the other party and then the corporate people get together and form another party. Yeah. I think what's going on, Cheryl, is the, the Republican Party went through this transition with the Reagan revolution where they went from being a, a fairly large tent uh, party that, you know, with uh -huh. multiple factions that were able to coexist and collaborate and work together. Their worldview is somewhat different than the Democrats, but not radically different. And that party got taken over by essentially the neo-fascists, the libertarians, the billionaires, the, particularly the petro-billionaires uh -huh. and the tobacco billionaires. 
And that led us to where we are today with the Republican Party. The Democratic Party is going through something very similar right now, only it's being taken over by FDR Democrats, which is returned to the core. Now, the Republicans returned to the core also. I mean, Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover ran administrations that, I mean, they're not as insane as Trump, but politically, in terms of you know, political goals and postures and things like that, they're pretty much identical to the modern Republican Party. So wow. both parties seem to be going back to their 1920s 20s, 1930s roots, and I completely agree with you. I think that you know, and this is this is my rant from the last hour about the fourth turning. I think that we are poised on the edge of the next Great Depression. I think 2007, 2008 was was the beginning of one, and we just poured money into it at the at the level of the Fed, and and now we know that since 2016, if it wasn't for government borrowing, corporate borrowing, and family borrowing, and by the way, family debt right now is at 12 trillion dollars. Right. We're, uh-huh. we're a, you know, an 18 trillion dollar a year economy. Family debt is at 12 trillion dollars. If it wasn't for all that borrowing, uh-huh. there would have been no growth of the economy since 2016. None. And and which means that the entire Trump economy is being held together with bailing wire and uh, and, and and bubble gum, you know, and it's just just waiting for a giant wind to hit it. So I'm, I'm with you, Cheryl. Thank you very much for the call. It's great to hear from you. So yesterday for Father's Day, uh, Louise and I went out and climbed a mountain. Well, part of one. <laughs> and boy, am I sore. And, uh, you know, then I had to go back and sit in my, in my office chair. And, and I was, you know, I'm, I'm working on this next book. And it's like, ah, why? Because it's the X chair. The X chair provides customized support in an office chair. I mean, when it comes to supporting perfect posture, providing ideal back support, no office chair compares to the X chair. The secret is the X chair's dynamic variable lumbar support, or DVL. This patented feature is what sets the X chair apart from every other office chair in the world. Ideal posture and support equals comfort, and when you're comfortable, the hours spent in the office honestly fly by. Feel the DVL difference for yourself. Try next year for 30 days completely risk-free. X-Chair is on sale now for 100 bucks off. Go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. You can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWheels and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels for your X-Chair. That's xchairtom.com xchairtom.com Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind? Well, Tom, let me uh, preface before I get this off my chest. I'll vote for whatever Democrat gets elected. And I don't know this to be true. But after watching the Democrats be complicit to the Republicans since uh, sometime in the Reagan administration, getting worse during the Bush Jr. administration, Speaking in the Obama administration, when he didn't even fight for his own Supreme Court justice, I think the Democratic elite, the power brokers, are playing a good game of good cop, bad cop with the Republicans. I don't think it's that simple, Mark. And, and you know, thanks for your, your opinion. I, I really don't think it's that simple. I think it's far more complex than that. I think the Democrats are interested in governing and the Republicans are interested in power so that they can hand deregulation to their buddies who give them hundreds of millions of dollars and their campaign donors who are giving them billions of dollars. And the consequence of trying to govern against a party that has no interest in governance, that only has an interest in having power and making money, Donald Trump 
and the Republican Party two years ago literally carved out one and a half trillion dollars in debt. And over the next decade, it may be as much as five trillion dollars carved out $1.5 trillion in immediate debt and handed it, or 87% of it, handed it to giant corporations and billionaires and, you know, and rich people and said, here you go, have fun. And they admitted this. I mean, they just basically came right out and said, yeah, we're going to give the billionaires a, you know, a trillion and a half dollars, $1,500 billion, $1.5 million, million dollars. We're just going to give it to them in the form of tax breaks and tax cuts. And by the way, we're gonna make those tax cuts permanent for everybody who makes over $75,000 a year. And for people who make less than $75,000 a year, those tax cuts are going to expire in eight years. So that's, that's what they said, right? Or they actually expire in 10 years, but eight years from now. Okay, they did it. It didn't crash the economy. The corporations took their trillion dollars and used it for stock buybacks, which diminishes the number of shares of stock in circulation, which increases the price of each share, you know, without going through a whole economic explanation. But basically, the, all the corporations did was use that money to jack up their stock prices, which made them richer, or at least made their senior executives and their shareholders richer, and all those people happy. The question then, if we can give one and a half trillion dollars to rich people, which we did two years ago, and borrow it, why can't we give one and a half trillion dollars to everybody in the country who has student debt? Now, one of the arguments that's made largely by the Republicans is, well, if you do that, many of these people who have student debt are actually very wealthy people. They or their kids, you know, or their kids' parents, they're, they're wealthy people. Yeah, they took out a student loan, but, you know, that doesn't mean that they're poor. And uh, you're giving welfare to rich people. You don't want to do that, do you? That's a BS argument. This is a complete straw man argument. It's the exact same argument that they tried to use on Social Security, where they said, you realize Charles Koch is eligible for Social Security right now. He's over 65. Isn't there something wrong with, you know, one of the richest men in America getting Social Security? No, there's nothing wrong with it. Right? Charles Koch's kids can go to a public school for free, too. Charles Koch can get you know, fire help you know, from the fire department for free. He can you know, get police services if he dials 911. That's called society. That's all of us together. That's, we're all in this thing together. And one of the big things that we learned from the GI Bill after World War II was that if you invest when, when literally, uh, you know, millions, I, I, I you know, don't know the number, but it was well over a million young men who had come back from World War II. My dad was one of them, and my wife Louise's dad was one of them. And, and my dad dropped out, and, uh, you know, two years into it, he wanted to be a history professor. Louise's dad was able to stick with it, and my dad dropped out because mom got pregnant with me. Um, but uh, Louise's dad was able to stick with it and get his law degree, and he became the assistant attorney general for the state of Michigan. Right? And what they learned was that if you give these young people free education, for every dollar you invest in that free education, I'm talking college here, for every dollar you invest in that college education, you get $7 over the course of the lifetime of that person in additional tax revenue that you never would have gotten if they hadn't gotten that college degree because they now have a higher income than people who don't have college degrees. So it's a 700% return on investment, right? Investing in free college. So if we were to borrow $1.5 trillion over the next 30 years, we're going to get back, what, $9.5 trillion, $10 trillion? I can't do math that fast, but seven times 1.5, whatever that is. That's what you're going to get back. 
So it, I mean, you know, this is the intellectual infrastructure of America. We all understand, oh, if we build roads, then trucks can go on those roads and, and do commerce, and it's going, to, it's going to increase economic activity, which will increase tax revenue, which will pay for the roads. Sort of sounds like Reaganomics, like trickle-down, right? Except trickle-down is based on BS, and this is actual economics. It's investing in infrastructure rather than investing in simply giving money to rich people, which is Reagan's thing. And, and Bushes and Trumps. But, but so Bernie has proposed that we simply wipe out all student debt right now and going forward, all public colleges and universities be free. And, you know, I've been saying this forever. It's insane. We're literally the only developed country in the world that has massive student debt. People can go into debt in other countries, going to college if they want to go to, you know, Oxford or Cambridge or, you know, fancy college, very high end colleges. But pretty much everyone. Every other developed country in the world gets it. They invest in their young people. And so this is not a rant about how wonderful Bernie is. I mean, I, he's not the only one. There's, you know, a, and by the way, Pramila Jayapal is proposing this legislation in the House of Representatives. The, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, along with Mark Pokey. And Ilhan Omar is also, she's uh, joining uh, Jayapal in, 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 in putting this thing forward. So do you see any problem with this? Do you think that the Republicans are right saying, oh, well, you don't want to give free college to people because, you know, then wealthy families will be able to go to college for free, even though they can send their kids to elementary school for free, right? What am I missing here? I don't think I'm missing anything, but if you, if you can figure it out, give me a call. Tom Hartman program. Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from... The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great, by Professor Harvey J. Kay, who's a professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. This is from the introduction, page one. We need to remember. We need to remember what conservatives have never wanted us to remember and what liberals have all too often forgotten. Now, after more than 30 years of subordinating the public good to corporate priorities and private greed, of subjecting ourselves to widening inequality and intensifying insecurities, and of denying our democratic impulses and yearnings, we need to remember. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who rescued the United States from the economic destruction of the Great Depression and defended it against fascism and imperialism in the Second World War. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who not only saved the nation from economic ruin and political oblivion, but also turned it into the strongest and most prosperous country on earth. And most of all, we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who accomplished all that in the face of powerful, conservative, reactionary, and corporate opposition, and despite all their own faults and failings by making America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. Now, when all they fought for is under siege, and we too find ourselves confronting crises and forces that threaten the nation and all that it stands for, now we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the most progressive generation in American history. We are the children of the men and women who articulated, fought for, and endowed us with the promise of the four freedoms. On the afternoon of January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt went up to Capitol Hill to deliver his annual message to Congress. Just weeks earlier, he had defeated the Republican Wendell Wilkie at the polls and won re-election to an unprecedented third term. But Roosevelt now faced a far greater challenge, 
one even more daunting than those he confronted in his first and second terms. Still stalked by the Great Depression, the United States was also increasingly threatened by the Axis power, Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy, Imperial Japan. And with war already raging East and West, Americans had yet to agree about how to respond to the danger. The president, however, did not falter. He not only proceeded to propose measures to address the emergency, he gave dramatic new meaning to all men are created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we the people of the United States, a new birth of freedom, and government of the people, by the people, and for the people. FDR knew about crises, but he knew as well what Americans could accomplish even in the darkest of times. Born in 1882, he had grown up privileged, the son of New York Hudson River Gentry. Yet long before becoming president, he had suffered serious defeats and setbacks, none more devastating than contracting polio in 1921 at the age of 39. The disease left him permanently unable to stand up or walk without assistance. However, supported by his wife Eleanor and other family members and friends, he had risen above the paralysis to become the most dynamic political figure in the United States. Moreover, his experiences and encounters in the course of doing so had reaffirmed and deepened his already powerful faith and confidence in God, in himself, and in his fellow citizens, all of which had enabled him, in the face of the worst economic and social catastrophe in the nation's history, to defiantly state that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and then go on to proclaim this generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. Armed with this faith and confidence and propelled by the popular energies that his words and elections elicited, he determinedly pursued the initiatives of relief, recovery, reconstruction, and reform known as the New Deal. Together, president and people severely tested each other, made mistakes and regrettable compromises, and suffered defeats and disappointments. Nevertheless, challenging each other to live up to their finest ideals, Roosevelt and his fellow citizens advanced them further than either had expected or even imagined possible. Confronting fierce, conservative, reactionary, and corporate opposition, they not only rejected authoritarianism, but also redeemed the nation's historic purpose and promise by initiating revolutionary changes in American government and public life and radically extending American freedom, equality, and democracy. They subjected big business to public account and regulation, empowered the federal government to address the needs of working people, mobilized and organized labor unions, fought for their rights, broadened and leveled the we and we the people, established a social security system, expanded the nation's public infrastructure, improved the environment, cultivated the arts, and refashioned popular culture. And while much remained to be done, they imbued themselves with fresh democratic convictions, hopes, and aspirations. Standing before the American people and their assembled representatives that early January day, the president surely believed their rendezvous with destiny had come. He told them straightforwardly that Americans were now confronting a moment unprecedented in the history of the United States. A moment unprecedented because never before had American security been as seriously threatened from without. And he refused to appease those who threatened our nation's safety. The book is The Fight for the Four Freedoms by Harvey King. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? 
If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the Fred chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Tom Hartman here with you, and on the line with us is Congressman Mark Pocan. Congressman Pocan is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents Wisconsin's second district in the in the U.S. House of Representatives. His website is pocan, p-o-c-a-n.house.gov, and you can tweet him at rep Mark Pocan. Congressman, what's on your mind right now? What are the things that you think we should all be paying serious attention to? You know, there's always a lot of things these days, but the one that we just took care of in the House yesterday and the Senate has to take action is the emergency supplemental for funding for the border. Uh, mm-hmm. The situation right now, uh, once again, uh, with children at the border is reprehensible. You know, kids who are don't have soap, toothbrushes, uh, you know, stories of two lice combs for a bunch of kids who are infected with lice and one was missing and the kid got punished for losing the comb by the staff, uh, not even getting more than a single blanket to sleep on the floor. And these are deplorable conditions. On concrete. And on concrete. On concrete. And they get a blanket, so either you can use it to lay on that very, very thin blanket, or you can use it to try to keep warm because of the air conditioning in the, the facility. And either way, it's unacceptable. And, and, and we apparently the a, lights are on all night? I mean, didn't the U.N. say that was torture? Well, there's Pardon supposed to be following... In some cases, uh, and there's different types of facilities, but what's called the Flores Settlement, which does provide some level of basic conditions they have to have, but not all the facilities have to abide by that. So in the supplemental that we did yesterday, in the House anyway, we added uh, some of those Flores Settlements for all facilities so that they can't have a waiver from any of these conditions. Uh, but also we added a, a hammer that if, a com- if one of these companies isn't abiding by it, they can lose the contract and not be allowed to rebid. So we've got some good language to try to address it, but that doesn't still stop the immediate situation that's happening right now for kids in way too many of these facilities. It's a national, I think, disgrace. I think you're absolutely right. Tom in Seattle. Hey, Tom, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. You know, the Republicans are in a bad place right now, but in the long run, I don't know if the Democrats are much better. I mean, they've got their legalized insider trading, and, and they seem to uh, be protecting the drug. Actually, it was the Democrats who pushed back on that, Tom, and did that when Brian Baird was in Congress. He uh, walked into, might have been Tom DeLay's office, it was one of the Republicans' offices, and discovered that there were a couple of members of his staff who were doing insider trading based on information that they knew about the upcoming defense bill. He came into our studio when I was doing my show from KPOJ, this was uh, 10 years ago, and laid this all out on the air, named the congressman, proposed legislation to put an end to it. The Republicans fought that. This uh, Democrats are just as bad as Republicans BS is the typical stuff that particularly the Republicans who are paid to call into programs like this love to say, and, and I consider it complete BS. 
So anyhow, Congressman, you want to respond to that, and then we'll pick up another call. Yeah, no, I, I think you know you bring up a good point. Look, I'm not always happy with uh, all policies of the Democratic Party, but there is a very popular refrain that the Republicans put out every election cycle to make you hate everyone to stay home because they'll still get their voters out. And I'm not saying that Tom necessarily was that person, but his message certainly rings uh, often very resonant with some of the messages we hear along those lines. You know, that's why I'm part of the Progressive Caucus, right? I'm trying to make the the Dem Party be a better, more progressive party. And I always think, you know, doing things in a positive manner are always better than just complaining. Yeah, amen. And that's why I just don't tolerate that kind of stuff on my air. Emmanuel in Chicago. Tom, uh, first of all, I love your show. I really appreciate your patriotism. But let me tell you a story. I was in church Sunday, and one of the bigger churches in Chicagoland area, and the preacher was doing the sermon, and he suddenly mentioned socialism and said that Jesus Christ is not a socialist. Let me tell you, you're not going to be fooled this time. There's a lot of fear amongst poor people, black and white, that socialism is going to deny them the opportunity to pull themselves up from the bootstraps, as the saying goes. And people who are trying to hold on to their tax cuts and stuff is using those terms to put fear in these people's minds. You're losing the battle if you, if you don't start differentiating what kind of socialism we're speaking of, because people who are not politically inclined are not really looking at the details of it. You have to explain it to them. What do you guys intend to do to make your positions clear? Sure, Emmanuel. I think that's a great and fair question. You know, I think whenever you take the bait from the other side, you're losing, right? If you're explaining, you're losing. They want to put out this term that, quite honestly, few people embrace, but it's not something that's generally term that Democrats use. You know, we actually go around saying, for the people, we have an agenda that we put out last fall, and we won uh, the majority in the House of Representatives based on. So I think to take their bait and go down that path isn't necessarily the best thing. I think it's really talking about the policies we're trying to put forward around health care, around raising people's wages, around trying to deal with the culture of corruption in Washington. When you talk about those things, we're talking to the vast majority of people about what they care about, and they talk about their kitchen table. They don't talk about labels. So Republicans want to have us on a debate about labels because they don't have ideas. I think if we actually not just talk about but act on and pass legislation that's strong on those values, uh, we will be in a really good place, and, and that's what I try to do while I'm in Congress. I'm on Chuck Schumer's email list, and... Uh... You know, I think I mentioned to you once, I can't print out his emails because they're so badly formatted, but, but there's good information in them. And to the best of my knowledge, he had several press conferences this week. At least I was notified of them. And I never saw any of this in the press. I mean, how can Democrats break through and get this message out that they're actually passing good legislation out of the House that's, being, that's dying in the Senate? Well, and I think right now that's what we're focused on. So, like, I know the Nancy Pelosi's put out some graphics with uh, McConnell's graveyard. Uh, we've had some other things put up by Steny Hoyer. We're starting to show all the bills that we've passed and what they're all dying in the Senate. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that conversation coming up. Good, because, you know, I mean, Schumer is like shouting this into the wind yeah. in these press conferences and these emails that are going out to the media. I mean, I'm on the media list. I'm getting the same thing the New York Times and CBS right. gets. But all the media is just ignoring him. Charles in Port St. Lucie, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Congressman, I am asking of all the Democratic participants in this year's election 
to restrain themselves from saying the word Donald Trump. In the debate going forward, I want to hear about infrastructure, education, foreign policy, immigration, climate change, Medicare. I don't want to hear about Trump doing this and Trump doing that and what Trump is not doing. I hear you, Charles. I mean, first of all, that's going to be a little difficult because sometimes we have to address the terrible things he does. Like right now, this week, we've been really dealing with, again, the conditions for the children at the border. But you are right, Charles. I mean, where we win is when we talk about our positions on issues, especially around things like climate, on raising people's wages, especially on health care, and about the culture of corruption in Washington. If we talk about those issues, we will be in a better and winning position. Having said that, though, Charles, occasionally we do have to bring up Donald Trump's name because of the actions he does, and people really need to know just how bad it is because, uh, you know, I have people in my family who are anti-choice voters but are absolutely disgusted by the treatment of children at the border. Sometimes you have to mention his name in order to talk about some of those issues to maybe wake people up to even listen to you about Social Security or health care or any of these other issues. James in Spokane County, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Pokian. Hey, I think more than ever, you know, we need to get this orange guy out and make America great again. Certainly do. What's going on now? Honest to God, I'm afraid that there are actually psychotics in their administration that are trying to set up a Fourth Reich. Truly. You look at the condition we're putting these children in at the border. You look at the way our prisons have always been. This insane war on drugs, still a scourge to our young people. Somebody needs to stop this. We're already the greatest polluter in the world. We're already the greatest terrorist in the world. What are we shooting for? The most draconian society in the new millennium? This is insanity. You guys don't realize the urgency. You truly do not. We do. It's one thing to complain. It's another thing to try to make the changes. Your first three points, though, there's a common theme, whether you realized it or not, which is fundamentally based on racism, you know, whether it be the prison system, whether it be the border situation, and I forgot the third issue, but all three were related to race conditions. And I saw something recently that came out I thought was interesting, that it's not even that uh, some of the, the issues with the, the white male population that are leaning so strongly Republican is that they just don't want to give up their status. It's not even that they feel a direct challenge. It's a, it's a status challenge that we're fighting. So that's why, you know, he can get away with doing what he does at the border because, let's face it, most of those folks are brown or black skinned individuals, and he can get away with that because of the inherent racism in there. So, James, I, I think many people are trying to do the right thing. I hope you are as well, besides just complaining about the current situation. But I do think we come back to that theme of the racism uh, that Donald Trump has built his presidency on. And uh, we need to have a national real debate about that. And again, I believe in the American people. And I think ultimately, at the end of the day, we'll be better because we have a stronger argument based on our values and morals. Craig in Northbrook, Illinois, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. So I'm just wondering, Congressman, could the Congress pass laws that puts caps on what these hospitals and healthcare providers are charging individuals for hospital visits and the like? These fees are exorbitant, and I think that this would transition well in regulating how the healthcare insurance industry, um, how those costs would be controlled as well. So I would just like to hear your guys' thoughts on that. 
Yeah, Craig, I mean, I think there's a lot of things we could do around healthcare from transparency to a lot of issues. The one that I'm most concerned about right now is a promise we made last November around prescription drug pricing. I grew up in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Al Capone used to have a hideout there. These prescription drug company CEOs would make Al Capone blush in how huh. they run their businesses. And I think that is the biggest driver we see on healthcare costs. We have to go after these companies that are taking advantage of the American consumer in such a disastrous way. Yeah. Congressman Pocan, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, of course, Tom. As always, thank you so much to your listeners, too. Great talking. Congressman Mark Pocan, his website, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at rep Mark Pocan. David in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I wanted to point out something that in the early 90s, once in uh, Newt Gingrich did this thing where every time that the Democrats were mentioned in the media, they would put a pejorative in front of it. So it would be dangerous Democrats, socialist Democrats, pie-in-the-sky Democrats. They'd always put a pejorative in front of You can of still everything. Google that, by the way, David. He, he had a word list. It was Newt Gingrich's word list. I wrote about it in one of my books. And yes. it's still floating around out there. And he had that positive words hearing. for Republicans, by the way. And that is what you're hearing. And, of course, you know, this whole thing with this, you know, they always talk about the fuzzy-headed liberal uh, Ivy League thinking. And it's like, well, you can't be any yeah. more fuzzy league pie in the sky than basing economics off of a second-rate science fiction writer. In other words, yeah. Anne Rand, using that as your basis for economic theory. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. And not to mention Art Laffer, who is getting the, the Presidential Medal of Freedom for writing on a napkin that there's this curve where as taxes go up, you know, revenue goes down somehow. It's a very strange. David, thank you. Very well said. And if where you were going with that is the Democrats need to get more strategic about their use of language. Amen. I completely agree. In 2008, I wrote a book called Cracking the Code, which is entirely about messaging with language, how we use language to message. Hi, for the Tom Hartman University Book Club today, we're reading from The Crash of 2016, which might happen, we'll see, but it's coming. This is from Chapter 5. Chapter 5 is titled, Reagan Kidnapped the Jetsons. In a 1966 article, Time magazine looked toward the future and what the rise of automation would mean for average working Americans. It concluded, quote, by 2000, the machines will be producing so much that everyone in the U.S. will, in effect, be independently wealthy. With government benefits, even non-working families will have, by one estimate, an annual income of $30,000 to $40,000. How to use leisure meaningfully will be a major problem, end of quote. And that was thirty to forty thousand dollars in nineteen sixty-six dollars, which would roughly be one hundred ninety-nine thousand to two hundred sixty thousand dollars in twenty ten dollars. Ask anybody who was a teenager or older in the nineteen sixties. This was a big sales pitch for automation and the coming computer age. There was even a cartoon show about it, The Jetsons, and everybody looked forward to the day when increased productivity from robots, computers, and automation would translate into fewer hours worked, or more pay, or both, for every American worker. And there was good logic behind the idea. The premise was simple. With better technology, companies would become more efficient. They'd be able to make more things in less time. Revenues would skyrocket, and and Americans would bring home higher and higher paychecks, all the while working fewer and fewer hours. 
So by the year 2000, according to Time magazine in 1966, we would enter what was then referred to as the leisure society. Futurists speculated that the biggest problem facing America in that Jetsons future of the year 2000 would be just how the heck everyone would use all their extra leisure time. And of course, there were also those who worried about what kind of degeneracy would emerge when a nation has lots of money and free time on its hands. Neither happened, and it didn't happen because Ronald Reagan stole the leisure society from us and handed it over to the economic royalists. In 1981, the royalists went right to work taking down that first pillar on which FDR rebuilt the American middle class, progressive taxation. Taking advantage of the oil shock crisis, neoliberal shock troopers immediately ushered through a revolutionary change in the tax code with the Economic Recovery Act of 1981. The first major piece of legislation signed by Reagan has slashed the top marginal income tax rate from 70% to 50%, cutting estate taxes for wealthy businesses and slashing capital gains and corporate profit taxes. Reagan succeeded a few years later in dropping the top income tax rate even more to 28%, where it hadn't been since the Great Depression. It was the second largest tax cut in history, and it was nearly identical to the largest tax cut ever, Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon's in the 1920s, the one that created the bubble known as the Roaring Twenties, which eventually burst in 1929. The great forgetting had certainly arrived. The economic mistakes of the 1920s were coming back around. And again, the influx of all this hot money in the market coupled with a robust deregulation agenda throughout the 1980s and 90s, would trigger a series of painful financial panics. The reason why the Leisure Society could be imagined by Time magazine is because ever since 1900, working people's wages tracked evenly with working people's productivity. So as productivity continued to rise, which was likely due to increased automation and better technology, so too would everyone's wages. And the glue holding this logic together was the current top marginal income tax rate. In 1966, when the Time article was written, the top marginal income tax rate was 70%. And what that effectively did was encourage CEOs to keep more money in their businesses, to invest in new technology, to pay their workers more, to hire new workers and expand. After all, what's the point of sucking millions and millions of dollars out of your business if it's going to be taxed at 70%? According to this line of reasoning, if businesses were to suddenly become more profitable and efficient thanks to automation, then that money would flow throughout the businesses, raising everyone's standard of living, increasing everyone's leisure time. Today, the average American working in manufacturing puts in about 40 hours a week. This means that despite the fact that productivity has increased 400% since 1950, Americans are working on average only two fewer hours a week. If productivity is four times higher than in 1950, then Americans should be able to work four times less, or just 10 hours a week, to afford the same 1950s lifestyle a family of four could get by on just one paycheck, own a home, own a car, put their kids through school, take a vacation every now and then, and retire comfortably. But all that was wiped out by Reaganomics and Ronald Reagan. And that's just the beginning of the setup for the crash of 2016. If you believe that you're not being snooped on or that nobody cares about your online data, well, then I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you're wrong. Hackers, governments, and ad companies all slurp up your data. That's why I recommend getting the software that I trust to protect my online activity, ExpressVPN. Their apps use powerful encryption to secure your data. ExpressVPN runs in the background of your computer or phone, and then you use the internet just like you normally would. You download the app, click to connect, and you're protected. I never go online without ExpressVPN, and you shouldn't either. ExpressVPN is the fastest VPN, costs less than $7 
$1,000 a month and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Take back your online privacy just like I did with ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com Tom. That's expressvpn.com Tom for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com Tom. That's expressvpn.com T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com Tom to learn more. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Gary in Rainier, Washington. Hey, Gary, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I was listening uh, the other day, and you were talking about how we need to rebrand ourselves uh, and get away from this uh, far-left topic. And uh, because Mm. everyone that talks about far-left, they're getting the benefits of all the things. And you brought up rebranding ourselves as FDR Democrats. And I really think we should talk about that every day. That's such a good idea. Bumper stickers, and it's not a bumper sticker where people are going to attack your car or anything. It's FDR Democrat. I think it would work. I think you're right. And I think it's something that's really worth paying attention to and doing. Gary, thank you. Thank you for the uh, affirmation on that. And I'll start mentioning it more frequently. I appreciate it. It's great to hear from you. Justin in Runnymede, New Jersey. Hey, um, I just wanted to give you a call to talk about Bernie's plan with college education and making public colleges and universities tuition-free. One of the things that I noticed right away as soon as he unveiled his plan was you're hearing people say, well, what about all the people who have already paid off their student debt? And how much that, if you follow that logic through with a lot of other issues, how little sense it makes, talking about going back to slavery people who are slaves and what do they have to say about people making slavery illegal or making it ending it if you follow that logic through with pretty much anything it just completely falls flat and it's just making me want to bang my head against the wall hearing it yeah i you know i I feel your pain justin (laughs) so bottom line here we put you in the list of supporting uh not just bernie's education plan i mean he's got one specific one elizabeth warren has a slightly different one but it's you know kind of a variation on that and a number of the other progressives are are moving in that direction right yeah well that was my other issue was with uh, not an issue so more so because i do really like elizabeth warren and i liked her plan but just from a, a policy perspective and a political perspective i think it just makes more sense to go into the bargaining table with the full loaf of bread and i feel like that's what bernie's plan is it's the full loaf yeah. I feel like starting in the middle, it just sets you up for failure. Yeah. Jim Hightower wrote a brilliant book back, geez, it must be 10, 15 years ago now. Uh, and the title of it, and it was about, you know, being a real progressive. And the title of it was, The Only Thing in the Middle of the Road Are Dead Armadillos and Yellow Stripes. And, <laughs> and you know, it's, it's just like, that's true. Justin, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. Marta in Big Bear Lake. Hey, Marta, what's up? Yes, I think people are, uh, for the most part, see themselves as compassionate. And I just wonder, what do you think is the solution? What is Nancy Pelosi promoting? Because I heard on, I think it was CNN, saying that the uh, Congress is going into recess without having uh, passed anything. And there's, uh, you know, the fear that they're being seen as not accomplishing anything. People want a solution. They see a lot of people see Trump at least doing something. So mm. I, obviously he's doing something horrible. But even Democrats that I've talked to in California for years and years, they're just tired of you know people being illegal. And of course, a lot of us would say, 
the system is broken. But how do we yeah. fix this problem, well, this crisis? The- that's a great question, Marta. And there's and, and thank you so much for the call. There's really two pieces to this. You know, one part of it is that we need comprehensive immigration reform. And a couple of years ago, the Senate actually passed a, compre- a bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform bill. And that was when the Republicans held the House and Paul Ryan refused to allow a vote on it. And they couldn't you know, they were trying to get enough votes for a discharge petition and all that kind of stuff. Now, I'm not sure if the House has passed uh, that same comprehensive immigration reform or not, but now Mitch McConnell in the Senate is saying, no way, we're not going to do this, we're not going to talk about it. We need an absolute law that says you can't do this. Now, there actually is a law that says children can only be held for 72 hours. You know, they can only be, quote, detained for 72 hours, and then they have to be handed off to, to uh, you know, child and family services and placed in foster care or find, you know, their parents or find an appropriate home for them or whatever it may be. But, you know, the Trump administration is ignoring that law and Bill Barr running the Justice Department is not going to prosecute himself or prosecute uh, Donald Trump. It just ain't going to happen. So, you know, this this then presents a substantial challenge. And I think the only thing that's going to overcome this is public opinion. If public opinion swings hard against Trump and Pence. I mean, Mike Pence on TV this, this, this weekend's, you know, asked about this, you know, children can't even get soap. They can't get toothpaste. I mean, the Somali pirates gave soap and toothpaste to their captives. They're, they don't have beds to sleep. They're sleeping on concrete and they're covered with tinfoil, right? Or mylar or whatever it is. I mean, they don't even have blankets. They don't have pillows. They've got nothing, right? Children. And Pence laughs. And then he says, oh, this is all the Democrats' fault. They won't appropriate enough money. And what he's talking about is we're paying $750 per day per child to these private prisons for holding these kids in dog kennels, which is nuts. And the the administration has come to the Democrats, has come to Nancy Pelosi and said, we need more money for more private prisons. And she said, no, we're not doing that. And so this was Pence's argument. It's all the Democrats' fault. We can't afford soap for these children. Give me a break. This is just absolute absolute BS. Manny in Moreno Valley, California. Hey, Manny, what's up? Tom, I just wanted to call and agree with you. Uh, you were talking earlier about CEOs being psychopaths, and I, I only agree with that point, too. I had this discussion with my brother, and he explained to me, he said, if you think about it, you know, if you're a CEO and your company had to lay off 10,000 workers to stay profitable, you know, if you're a psychopath, you can do it on a heartbeat. And once he explained it to me, yep. I, it made a, lot, it made a lot of sense. Yeah. Oh, no, no. It's, you know, go back to, you know, Chainsaw Al Dunlop, who laid off Mm 10,000 people at Sunbeam and and a a few other companies. He was famous for it. He was brought in to just lay off people. He did it gleefully. The guy, in my opinion, was a psychopath. The CEOs who put humanity essentially behind profit, put profit ahead of humanity. It's just an absolutely terrible thing. Rich in Aurora, Colorado. Hey, Rich, what's on your mind? I will bet my life that if, if we don't get this guy out of office by impeachment, the elections are going to get rigged again. Keep in mind, he won yeah. by 80,000 votes with three states. It's not going to yeah. take three states. We absolutely have to start impeachment hearings, and we don't even have to vote. But I hope you're wrong about being to get to one, uh, 120 of people, because they say if we don't do something by July and it gets into next year in the elections, 
our chances are, are pretty are slim to none. And, you know, I, I don't care if it gets into the elections. I mean, I, this is what the pundits, this is what the chattering class, the multimillionaires on television are telling you, even the ones who, who call themselves Democrats, you know, but who obviously, like Donnie Deutsch, are not, at least not no. in spirit. You can impeach a president any old time, just like you can put somebody on the Supreme Court any old time. Rich, thanks a lot for the call. Morris in Long Beach, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Morris, what's on your mind today? Professor, what do you think of Chris Matthews of the MSNBC news program, Hardball? I think he does a really good show, and I don't always agree with his politics or his guests' politics. But I'm, I'm, where are you going with this, Morris? Uh, here's where I'm going with this. A couple of months ago, the guy said that the Democratic Party is not going to impeach Donald Trump. And I said, well, this is a, a corporate voice. I'm not going to pay attention to that. Now, the other day, I'm witnessing treason right in front of me, uh, straight up. And I'm looking at the president, you know, telling the FBI agent he's wrong. I mean, this is incredible, incredible, the Spanish would say. And it's, I'm almost in agreement with this guy that I don't know what it's going to take for them to, to do what they have a responsibility to do. But it takes me back to, and I know you're not going to allow your program to be used as a platform for no negativity, you know, firing squads. Well, Professor, and I've said this before, I can't help but believe that the Democratic Party is paid to lose. They're not paid to represent the voice of the spirit of the people. And we're just seeing so much of, of criminality right now. The only kind of spirit, in my opinion, that can stand up to what we're witnessing is that uh, Ocasio-Cortez kind of voice. Uh, I have a lot of respect mm -hmm. for Ms. Pelosi. She reminds me of a grandmother type, but she's still a corporate leader. I wouldn't want to be in her position, by the way. I'm not going to throw no soldiers. I would not want that job. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah. considering what we're dealing with, listen to you, who your guests have been just this week alone, just this one week right here. If we didn't do nothing, for the, if there was no example of the Tom Harper program for years and years and years, and all we had was just this one week right here, this would be enough. So the Democratic Party, in my opinion, is paid to lose, and everybody that's listening, that's why they're not moving on getting rid of this criminal. Thank you. Okay. I get it, Morris. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, I know a bunch of elected Democrats and I don't believe that any of them are paid to lose. I, th I think that they are trying to govern and what the Democratic Party needs to reckon with is the fact that the Republicans are paid to sabotage governing. They are, the, the Republican Party now has been taken over by a faction that is fundamentally opposed to democracy in the United States. They're trying to turn us into an authoritarian fascistic government. And you have to play hardball with that. You can't play softball. And uh, too many Democrats are still playing softball, uh, frankly, in my opinion. Andy in Belmont, Michigan. Hey, Andy, what's up? Hey, I also got that survey and a couple of the guys I work with also got it. It's, a, mm -hmm. it's called an election survey. Romney, she's, she's kind of the editor of it. And it's telling us- Oh, she's the know, chairperson of the RNC. Right, exactly. And what they're doing is they're asking, what's your, it's a survey of what's your top five or ten questions or things that you want the Trump administration to do. And it starts, you know, it's got on there about uh, the wall. It's got about there about taxes for the rich. And then at the end it says, the lying, cheating Democrats. And I'm just going, you know, that's exactly what you guys are doing to us. And you're saying it's us doing it to you? You know, and it's a registered letter. And then, of course, they don't give us a stamped envelope to mail it back you have to put the you know stamp on there right because they really don't want it they don't care what you no. have to say the whole point is they want you to read the letter and the letter is filled with lies and slanders against uh, democrats amen oh, andy thank you very much yeah if you, if you get one of these surveys you need to know what exactly what it is and that is exactly what it is it's lies and slander thanks so much for being with us today and 
Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. And by the way, action is the best therapy. Get out there and do something. Tag your listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 